Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and a very warm welcome to Season 4, Episode 3 of Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence's Compliance Clarified podcast. My name is Susanna Hammond and I'm Senior Regulatory Intelligence Expert here at TRRI. Now, in this third episode of the fourth series, we're taking a fresh look at how the implications of tackling financial crime are shaping up. And to chat about it all, I'm delighted to say I'm joined by Alex Robson, Rachel Wilcott and Brett Wolfe. Hi, Susanna. Uh, It's great to be here. Thank you. Welcome. Happy to join everyone. Hello. Lovely to have you all here. And and thank you as ever for joining. Um, Now, goodness, there is such a wide swathe of financial crime challenges for 2022. And just as an example, both of the European Union and the UK are seeking to breathe life into their AML anti-money laundering regimes, which are perceived to be weak. On the other side of the pond, the US, there are warnings of swift economic penalties and sanctions should Russia end up intervening in Ukraine. And of course, if those are imposed, they would need to be applied suddenly in the middle of what would already be a crisis, therefore creating an even bigger challenge for compliance risk and legal departments. And aside from jurisdiction-specific financial crime challenges, there remain the concerns surrounding the use and indeed abuse of cryptos. Now, before we kick off into some of the other detail, let's delve a bit more into the issues which could arise with potential sanctions around the world. And sadly, there is no shortage of choice where these could come from. We've got China and Taiwan, Myanmar, North Korea and Afghanistan. And But of course, perhaps the biggest concern just at the moment is Russia and, the, and Ukraine. So, Brett, I mean, I know there's a lot to talk about, but... The US and the Biden administration, what sort of stance are they taking on all of this? Sure. Well, I would just mention that the Biden administration has been actively issuing sanctions uh, with a focus on corruption and human rights issues, uh, which it is said that it views as a national security threat, um, thereby illustrating um, an aggressiveness Um, with some of these sanctions that perhaps we haven't seen in the past. Um, The administration conducted a months-long review last year uh, looking at how the U.S. uses sanctions. And as a result of that review, uh, it vowed to more closely cooperate with partners and try to seek to minimize the humanitarian impact of U.S. sanctions. But despite uh, those review findings and... uh, that planned change in approach, um, there's been no sign that the U.S. is is easing up on its issuance of sanctions. Um, And in December, uh, there was a flurry of sanctions like uh, perhaps uh, I haven't seen in my couple of decades on this beat. Um, So it's certainly very active right now, the United States is, in in terms of churning out these sanctions. And the situation with Russian troops amassed on the border with Ukraine uh, raises a specter of uh, of massive and punishing U.S. sanctions targeting Russia's energy and high-tech industries, uh, potentially as well as its banks. Uh, There has been talk about severing Russia's uh, institution's ties to the SWIFT messaging system. Um, There's been various experts offering their opinions on whether or not that will actually happen. Um, But at this point, some experts are saying that 
the U.S. might instead uh, simply blacklist some of Russia's largest banks, uh, thereby cutting them off entirely from the global financial system. Um, obviously, that would be an extreme step uh, that would have severe consequences for the Russian economy. And there is, therefore, the possibility of Russia responding, uh, retaliating uh, with cyber attacks uh, against U.S. infrastructure. Uh, specifically, uh, we're hearing U.S. banks could be targets. Um, in fact, the New York Department of Financial Services um, has uh, issued a bulletin making banks aware of this threat. Um, so in addition to, to banks um, you know, preparing for potential sanctions against Russia via contingency planning um, and estimating their exposure to some of the, the major targets uh, that OFAC might go after in Russia, uh, institutions might also want to shore up their cybersecurity defenses. Uh, another uh, area I'd like to mention in terms of U.S. sanctions uh, is the fact that the U.S. Treasury has been actively targeting cryptocurrency exchanges, uh, in part because of their roles in facilitating payments linked to ransomware attacks. Um, last year, Treasury blacklisted two uh, crypto exchanges, um, as well as uh, started sanctioning specific crypto assets. Uh, very interesting move in this space. Uh, and in October, Treasury issued sanctions compliance guidance tailored specifically to crypto entities. Um, while this guidance was uh, somewhat generic rather than being very technical um, and, and sort of read like a, a primer for, uh, for novices to this uh, space, uh, in fact, maybe that's what it was, um, uh, it definitely signaled that Treasury is focused on, uh, on crypto when it comes to sanctions. Um, so, uh, you know, for financial institutions, uh, involvement in things like ransomware payments, um, you know, that also involve these crypto, crypto exchanges, it's, it remains an area of extreme risk. Thank you. Yes. And, and, and I would absolutely echo the, the, the crypto's complication, shall we say, with the whole financial crime space. So, Alex, sanctions are such a political tool. Where are we with the UK on that? I think the first, if obvious point, really, uh, to make is that sanctions and counter-money laundering policy in general uh, are political. Uh, and it's much easier uh, than shedding blood on any battlefield. Uh, to say, I think a couple of developments, really. Since Brexit, the UK government has moved more or less in lockstep with the Biden administration uh, rather than you know, commonly agreed positions of the European Union. Uh, that trend is likely to continue. Uh, and I, I, you know, I think it's just another thing that banks in London need to be aware of. Uh, and that, you know, will, will certainly be the case until any possible change of government here. Uh, you know, no elections due until at least 2024. Uh, but it's likely to be earlier than that. But I don't. I don't think there's going to be any any, any, any change in that position, and obviously uh, sanctions have been in the news daily uh, in recent weeks because of Russia's hundred thousand troops massed on the border of Ukraine. I did a search on Reuters Connect uh, for sanctions and found tons of material uh, 
each day going back, you know, weeks and weeks. So it is a very live issue for our clients. Uh, the reputational and financial risks of getting this wrong are huge, and they really cannot afford to do that. I think that it is interesting to digest what politicians say on a topic, which we as a team cover on a day-to-day -day basis. And I don't feel necessarily that connected or informed to what politicians say about a whole host of uh, things. Uh, but this really counts for us. And one can't help but feel that they speak with a forked tongue on this. Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary and Prime Minister Boris Johnson, have been and I'll choose my words carefully here, uh, unequivocal about sanctions that the UK would impose on President Putin's inner circle, some of whom are, who are here in London, if there's any kind of incursion into Ukrainian territory. So that's a nice, easy front page headline there. And yet those same members of the inner circle have multi-million pound townhouses in London educate their children at our expensive private schools and use a range of professional advisors in the city in the West End to look after their assets via onshore, offshore companies, trusts, partnerships and other means. So there is potentially a large amount to lose here for our gatekeeper professions and beyond. But if you take the view that security begins at home and you need to tackle corruption, then the UK begins to look like an outlier here internationally. So I, I think, you know, that that's that's where we are now. There are some, you know, big decisions to make. And it doesn't, and I'm sure we'll get onto this later, it doesn't really help at the same time that the government, because of its uh, difficulties over the coronavirus parties in, during, in, during lockdown uh, in Downing Street, has dropped the economic crime bill. Uh, so that, that's where we are now. So, Rachel, Brett's teed us up with regard to um, sanctions and the sanctions approach um, from the Biden administration, which is active. I think that puts it mildly. <laughs> so what's the mood music like here in the UK? Uh, well, just to kick off with uh, the Russia-Ukraine tensions, uh, the government here has... Uh, announced several times its intention to bring sanctions against uh, Ru Russians as well in retaliation for aggression on the Ukrainian border. However, the absolute latest on this is that the Foreign Office uh, failed to get the legislation into the House of Parliament on time for it to be passed today, which is the 10th of February on time. So they've brought it into the House. It's been laid before Parliament, but uh, Parliament is going on recess tomorrow and they're not back until the 20th. So this isn't going to be a fast moving thing. They're going to have to wait uh, a little while longer. And so that, I think, deflates some of the sanctions threats slightly. Um, however, the mood music here, from a sanctions point of view, couldn't be any different from, any more different from that in the U.S. You know, there is no steady drumbeat coming out of 10 Downing Street about sanctions. Um, there are few 
uh, enforcement actions around sanctions. In fact, in the last 10 years, there have only been like four or five, and some of them are very small. For example, there was a 5,000 pound fine on Raphael and Sons a couple years ago, and everybody thought that was going to be, be a big changing point, and it wasn't. Um, but there was a very big fine on Stan Chart, and that had to do with all the other sanctions issues that they were having, and they were also fined in the United States. Um, so it, it's the general feeling here is that these these kinds of uh, issues, whether it's financial crime, fraud, sanctions, it's just not a big government agenda behind it. Uh, there's not a lot of interest in it at number 10 at the moment. And um, uh, they have proposed some other uh, bits of legislation that are meant to be um, cracking down on foreign money in the UK, but they're all in a holding pattern. Um, there was the uh, economic crime bill that's been dropped. There's going to be no company's house reform, and that's not that doesn't have anything directly to do with sanctions. But you know, it's uh, company's house abuse has been is the way that money launderers set up fraudulent companies here in the UK to launder money. And then the big thing is the, there's going to not, there won't be an overseas register or a register of overseas beneficial ownership happening here any time soon. Um, meanwhile, London has this growing uh, reputation um, for being a great place to launder money. There was an article in the Times last week here about our oligarchs' children snapping up pricey London properties. And one thing that came out of uh, last week's Treasury Select Committee's report, uh, economic crime report was that there haven't been a lot of improvements at the uh, Financial Intelligence Unit here. And that was a key criticism of the 2018 FATF review, but still, like, dragging their the government is dragging its feet um there's hasn't been the kind of transformation that they promised yet yeah I, I, gosh to say there is a lot of work to be done i suspect puts it mildly um just just flipping back to the other side of the pond where activity is definitely going on um and, and really to focus on the guidance that is given to firms um, when having to deal with these sanctions, because for goodness sake, they under and indeed overlap. I mean, Brett, where are we with Afghanistan and the Taliban and the US administration's approach to sanctions and the enforcement around that and the guidance given to firms? Sure. Well, I, I'd say we haven't uh, gotten to any enforcement phase at this point. Uh, because the U.S. is still really trying to determine how to approach the issue of uh, uh, the nation being governed by the Taliban and the Haqqani network. Uh, Treasury to, to date has been really squarely focused on uh, convincing banks and money remitters uh, to continue allowing humanitarian aid to flow and remittances to occur. Uh, Treasury's held a number of meetings with NGOs uh, in a push to, to sort of clarify for banks uh, what kind of money flows are permissible. Uh, 
Treasury's issued several general licenses and frequently asked questions uh, aimed at easing financial sector concerns. Uh, in terms of their effectiveness, um, you know, we did see a couple of money, uh, large money remitters pull out of Afghanistan and then come back. Uh, so it would seem that, you know, Treasury's had some success uh, in, in uh, easing compliance concerns, uh, or perhaps it's uh, reputational uh, as well as uh, legal and uh, regulatory risk um, and easing, you know, those various concerns. Uh, but, you know, while longstanding U.S. sanctions prohibit transactions uh, involving the Taliban, Earlier this month, Treasury said in one frequently asked question uh, that payments of taxes, fees, or import duties to the Taliban-controlled government were in fact allowed. Uh, and you know, we'll certainly see more movement uh, in this space as, as Treasury works to sort of fine-tune um, the, the details of what is permitted and what is not, or at the very least in clarifying that uh, for very nervous financial institutions. Um, and of course, this kind of fine tuning is, is vital for institutions that uh, the government uh, is relying on to get these funds into Afghanistan at this, this time of crisis. Now, I'd just like to hop in on the back of what Brett's been saying. Um, we haven't been getting anywhere near the amount of uh, official guidance here in the UK that uh, the US has been uh, issuing. Uh, what we we did get in August a reminder from the Financial Conduct Authority that um, you know, once the US pulled out of Afghanistan that the financial crime risk was going to increase and that they should firms should check their systems and controls. Um, the other thing we do get is uh, periodic uh, updates to uh, lit online PDF lists of uh, sanctioned individuals and organizations. And there were a lot of people added in uh, to in the most recent uh, update to the Afghanistan list. And you know, eventually we can expect a lot to see a lot more on the Treasury's list for Russia. Um, and I'd also like to uh, add that the Financial Conduct Authority has followed the U.S. in issuing banks with a warning that they should be on alert for Russian cyber attacks. Um, you know, as this uh, Ukrainian uh, border crisis uh, continues to percolate. Yes, I mean, it'd be lovely to think that the, the border crisis is going to go away sometime soon, but I, I wouldn't like to make mm. that assumption at all. Um, Alex, the UK and indeed the EU are trying to sort out their respective approaches to the prevention of money laundering. Um, what have we seen lately on that? Well, key to this is the Economic Crime Bill. Uh, and this, you know, regrettably has been dropped uh, we're promised that it's been uh, going to be resurrected in the Queen's speech, which is the next session of Parliament, which might be after the Platinum Jubilee celebrations, but you know, we, we simply don't know at this stage. Uh, and the Economic Crime Bill 
or the the plan to the, the economic crime plan was announced uh, under David Cameron two conservative prime ministers ago uh, as, as as a priority but lawyers have often told us that they they don't think many uh, uh, UK governments going back to the days of Tony Blair so it's not this this isn't political you know it's not criticism of any one particular party have not prioritized uh, fraud uh, and the UK has effectively kicked the relevance and effectiveness of dealing with this problem into the long grass because of the dropping of the economic crime bill. Although I don't think that uh, anyone should uh, underestimate the difficulties of getting you know, the technical and legal complexity solved for this particular bill. It, is, it you know, would be a big bill uh, and it is, it, is, it, is, it is complex. But one of the keys to unlocking this is reform of companies house it's estimated there are more than a hundred thousand properties a properties owned by shell companies with no effective way of dealing with beneficial ownership and attempts to deconstruct beneficial ownership by underfunded law enforcement officials remain pretty much that so it's hard to take at face value threats from politicians to impose fresh sanctions as we were discussing earlier Money laundering prosecutions, for instance, have dropped by a third in the last five years. And abuses at Companies House uh, and its registration processes have been on the sort of chopping block for reform for a very, very, very long time. But right now, it is not going uh, anywhere. It's not the only thing. Uh, The government's... uh, it's also been dragging its feet on the uh, corporate criminal liability. No changes are, are expected with that until at least the end of this year, if not longer. Uh, its aim is to provide a solution to the challenges that prosecutors face under the current law and provide support the creation of new failure to prevent offences for economic crimes, you know, such as fraud, false accounting and money laundering. Banks are already focused on the impact that a failure to prevent model would have on their already significant compliance burden. So there is, you know, there's there's a lot potentially going on, but just not moving really very far right now. So, Rachel, I mean, it's not as though nothing has been going on in terms of prevention of money laundering, focus on financial crime in Europe. So, So what has been happening and what is likely to now happen in the future? Okay, well... There were a few uh, big fines last year uh, across the EU, and um, you can put this much against the backdrop of the Danske Bank scandal from a few years ago. There is still a lot of fallout from from that. Um, the you know apart from that. Uh, uh, one a good example is that the uh, Swedish Economic Crime Authority has charged uh, the former Swedbank uh, CEO with gross fraud stemming from that money laundering scandal. And uh, Germany has uh, taken some action against uh, a neobank called N26. This isn't related to uh, the Dansk uh, uh, situation. But, you know, this was a new, this is a relatively new player. They were fined 4 million euros. Rabobank uh, was fined, was ordered to fix its uh, 
customer due diligence diligence processes last year in the Netherlands. Um, they are possibly facing a fine from Dutch authorities. And ABN also last year um, paid uh, about half a billion euros uh, for a customer transaction monitoring failing. So there is some uh, uh, enforcement action going on. And next to that, uh, the EU has been stepping up its kind of approach to uh, money laundering and financial crime. It is uh, going to create uh, AMLA, the Anti-Money Laundering Authority. It's making a single rule book. Uh, it is, so AMLA will assume direct supervision of selected risky financial uh, institutions and indirect oversight of all over all uh, over all other entities by 2026. So that's quite big. Uh, they're going to be um, putting all the AMLD directives into a single rule book to level the playing field, uh, to you know eliminate dis uh, disparities on a state to state basis. And there are also plans to boost uh, FIUs, which like I said about the one in the UK, they haven't been doing a great job. Um, uh, on the uh, enforcement side of things, there's been some big action here in the UK as well. That was uh, the NatWest fine and the HSBC fines that came in December. Uh, by the way, the NatWest fine was its third in 10 years' time, and HSBC is a repeat offender as well. And the theme of all of these fines um, in the UK, in the EU, are system and control failures. Failures to implement AML programs and technology properly, failure to fix problems when they arise, turning off alerts, failing to calibrate systems. It is not a good look. It's unclear to me at this point what they're actually doing about it. Um, you know, post-fine, are these bank system controls any better? It's it's hard to tell because, you know, they are still relying heavily on humans to sift through alerts um, and, uh, you know, do in, in investigations. Um, and to be honest, tech vendors I've spoken to say that banks' tech stacks just a, a barrier to implementing some of the newer tools powered by machine learning that might make them able to do better due diligence um, and better understand who their customers are, you know, track transactions, make connections. And part of that is, you know, the tech stacks, but also they just don't want to pay they don't want to be seen to be doing something different. And like someone told me yesterday, there's safety in numbers in terms of everybody plodding along doing it the old way. Um, people are afraid that they might try something new and fail. I'm not saying that technology is the be all and end all to this. Um, I think that's very much a work in progress, but um it definitely has is not the panacea that it's been claimed to be yet. No, and and we've written about and commented on the issues with regard to well, bank in particular, IT infrastructure is a huge amount, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and 
it's not just the banks, as we've said. I mean, it's it's everybody else in financial services and sadly the regulators as well. Everybody needs to up their game technologically. Um, but that's expensive. And uh, yeah. So coming back to the US perspective again, Brett, I know you mentioned there was an enormously busy 2021. Um, but where are we now with what is expected of firms? Um, and what what is OFAC now, well, demanding of firms in the way of how they approach their prevention of financial crime obligations? Sure. Well, the, the United States is deep into a push to modernize and update its AML rules. Um, the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 and the uh, accompanying Corporate Transparency Act um, have left Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network uh, busy writing and amending rules. Um, AML compliance officers and boards of directors really have to keep tabs on these developments uh, and consider the, uh, the ways these changes might impact their AML programs uh, and even start preparing before these rules are finalized uh, to avoid a mad scramble and, and perhaps regulatory issues. Um, one high impact series of new rules relates to the creation of a beneficial ownership registry, uh, which was mandated by the Corporate Transparency Act. Uh, the goal is to make it more difficult for criminals uh, to abuse U.S. shell companies with virtual impunity. Uh, U.S. states like Delaware and some others um, have been traditionally known um, around the world as a place to create opaque companies uh, that can really obscure the beneficial ownership of accounts, assets, um, uh, property, real property. Um, so, you know, the U.S., while the, it looks like these rules are probably going to be imperfect and there will be some loopholes that remain, um, it's really a push to uh, at least take steps uh, to, to have better visibility into uh, who owns these entities by requiring uh, that states collect the information at the time of incorporation and that companies report uh, information about their true or beneficial owners to uh, the Treasury's Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, uh, which will actually maintain the registry uh, as well as writing the rules around it. Uh, FinCEN has divided uh, the task into several rules uh, all of which promise to impact bank AML compliance. Uh, just this week, actually, uh, the comment period on FinCEN's proposed rule outlining uh, beneficial ownership reporting requirements closed, and the Treasury Bureau vowed to issue a proposal on access to the registry later this year. Um, the issue of access is really a huge concern for banks, um, which have long said you know, that they need some way to verify the beneficial ownership information that they're required to collect under a 2018 FinCEN rule. Um, but, uh, you know, banks believe that they must have access to the, to the data in the registry if they're going to be able to improve their CDD programs. But the beneficial ownership registry is just one piece of a fairly massive puzzle uh, that uh, AML authorities are, are putting together here in the U.S. Uh, 
amid a flurry of other announcements and a steady stream of Treasury sanctions uh, in December, FinCEN published a request for information uh, soliciting bank input on ways to streamline, modernize, and update the U.S. AML-CFT regime. Uh, FinCEN noted that it was aware that advances in technology have to be taken into account, uh, which was interesting. Uh, because this may be an opportunity for financial institutions that are interested in innovation uh, in the technical space uh, to share their thoughts and perhaps, uh, you know, bring regulators on board in terms of, uh, you know, perhaps not having to run their legacy systems and their innovative systems uh, and, you know, fear that if their new systems turn up some kind of longstanding problems, that you know they're not going to face enforcement action over that. Um, so you know that's a dialogue that's uh, very important. Uh, FinCEN's also developing proposed rules uh, that require financial institutions to incorporate so-called national AML CFT priorities into their BSA programs. And FinCEN named these priorities in June. They're cybercrime, terror finance, fraud transnational criminal organizations, drug trafficking organizations, human trafficking and human smuggling, as well as proliferation financing. And while FinCEN said at the time that the release of the list didn't create an immediate change to Bank Secrecy Act compliance requirements or supervisory expectations, it did suggest that financial institutions start considering how they're going to incorporate these priorities into their risk-based AML programs. <clears throat> and the urgency of that suggestion uh, spiked days ago when FinCEN's semi-annual regulatory agenda uh, revealed that in April, FinCEN plans to propose a rule that will require financial institutions to maintain quote-unquote effective and reasonably designed AML programs. Uh, and it added that a rule would make risk assessments, which have uh, for a long time been regulatory expectations, an actual legal requirement, uh, which you know could open the door to enforcement if an institution is seen to have uh, a risk assessment that is inadequate, uh, and, and that is you know creating cons some concern. Uh, in fact, experts uh, immediately responded to that. Uh, uh, in conversations with uh, regulatory intelligence, uh, telling us that the best way to demonstrate and implement, implement an effective and reasonably designed program uh, is to integrate the national AML priorities into the risk assessments, uh, thereby identifying the threats and vulnerabilities tied to the priorities, uh, really to demonstrate to regulators uh, that they're using government information to and priorities to, to full effect. Um, and I just add that, you know, having been on this beat for a couple of decades, it, it really hasn't been since uh, the years uh, post-USA Patriot Act that we've seen this, this scale of regulatory change in the AML space in this country. And uh, financial institutions really have to maintain awareness of these various developments. Uh, and take steps to prepare, uh, you know, as these proposed rules and advanced notice of proposed rules come out, um, these, you know, institutions need to make their voices heard 
during the comment periods uh, of these rulemaking um, processes and in order to ensure that you know their points of view are taken into account uh, as FinCEN churns its way through this massive task of uh, implementing the AML Act and the Corporate Transparency Act. Um, Brett, I just wanted to pick up on a little bit on what you've uh, said about uh, ultimate beneficial ownership. I just come to my attention uh, doing a little more research into the tech side of things that uh, there are a lot of tech companies out there now offering uh, these AI powered uh what they call KYB, know your business, uh, software packages or databases. Um, and let's just say some of them, uh, they, they've definitely identified a need and a, a gap in the market. Uh, you know, they claim they can make, uh, in, I saw one the other day that claimed it could instantly detect <laughs> if it was a legitimate business or not, uh, I, I, I don't understand how that was going to work, but uh, there you go. Uh, it, it seems like for that problem, even if, if the UK isn't going to be um, launching its uh, register anytime soon, uh, there'll be some people in the uh, uh, private sector offering to help. Whether firms want to avail themselves of that is uh, up to them, obviously. Um, but the other thing I wanted to ask you about, Brett, was um, what, what, why now? Why is the uh, U.S. ramping up its uh, sanctions regime and its uh, financial crime fight against money laundering? I mean, I, I feel like we haven't really had the 9-11 type uh, watershed moment? Sure. Well, in regard to sanctions, I would say that every U.S. administration loves sanctions. Um, we've, uh, we've seen just, you know, administration after administration really use this as a uh, foreign policy tool, um, you know, at the sort of the, the club um, to, uh, to uh, whack away at uh, not only adversaries, but um, uh, sort of uh, financial competitors that the U.S. believes have unfair rules. You know, we've seen the, the tit for tat with China. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the, the sanctions issue isn't really a big surprise. Um, with regard to uh, the move in AML and why now, um, I, there are a number of reasons um, to, to name a couple. The U.S. is finally uh, taking steps to address this issue of uh, ultimate beneficial ownership after many years of criticism from the Financial Action Task Force yeah. um, and some very low marks on uh, the, the mutual evaluations in this space. Um, you know, the U.S. is also, you know, looking at rules for real estate professionals um, and, you know, in the uh, recent uh, anti-corruption strategy, you know, uh, the government stated that it's, it's even wants to look at rules for investment advisors, um, which for a long time 
Um, it, it's been unclear why FinCEN hasn't moved on, on previous proposals uh, to bring IAs under the uh, 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 AML umbrella, um, you know, and as well as uh, art dealers and others. So, you know, there, there's definitely a response to uh, some of the, the, the fat of criticism. Um, and, you know, we've also seen uh, some of the Democratic leadership uh, in Congress uh, prioritizing uh, the, the fight against corruption as well as uh, the need to, to tighten the AML rules. And that in, poor, in part uh, has been a driving force behind this. Um, but, you know, the, the, the AML snowball is, is rolling downhill at this point. Definitely seems and, like it. Uh, it. It certainly is. And it, it's got great momentum. And FinCEN is uh, really moving fast to, to try to get these things implemented uh, because it's got so much on its plate uh, stemming from the uh, AML Act of 2020. So, very busy time over here. Oh yeah, we just to just one last comment. We've had similar uh, action taken on art dealers um, and uh, real estate uh, here in the UK and in the EU. Um, there's been some concerns at the EU level about money laundering through uh, football team transfer deals and you know th things like that. So. You know there are people at the policy level who are you know, looking beyond, uh, you know, banking, and uh, uh, actually a lot of the anti-money laundering fines that we have here in the UK actually fall to people like accountants, um, and there have been a couple of estate agents as well. But I mean, it's all pretty small beer. Yes, and, and, and I would, I mean, moving to the end of the podcast now, Goska, we covered an awful lot of ground. And, and in terms of takeaways for compliance officers, picking up on the threads around a lot of the enforcement actions and very much weaving into OFAC's absolute emphasis on the need to have a risk-based AML programme, firms absolutely need to get their systems and controls hardwired and invest in them. I mean, I know it's expensive. It's probably going to be painful because there will be always be competing priorities. But you will need that systems and controls infrastructure in place to be able to deal with all of the change that is here and coming. And you will need a robust systems and controls infrastructure if you're going to be able to move at speed. And you may well need to move at speed if some of the sanctions come into force suddenly and quickly. The other thing I would say is that you need a strategic approach to the absolute patchwork quilt of under and overlapping rules around the world. I mean, that particularly applies to sanctions, but you do need to upfront say, this is how we are going to handle it. So you are not surprised when you come up against a rule clash or where rules simply don't in the middle. My takeaway. So, Brett, your takeaway for compliance officers? Sure. I'd say that... Uh... Compliance officers need to carefully track the sanctions and AML developments. Uh, you know, they're coming fast and furious. So that this is admittedly a lot of work, uh, but it's uh, 
very important to 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 be aware in this highly dynamic environment. Um, I'd also suggest uh, that you know they be sure that their institutions are making their voices heard during the comment period of these rules. Um, it, furthermore, it's it's difficult to overstate the importance of sanctions contingency planning um, and knowing your exposure. Uh, to entities that uh, might be targeted as uh, part of these um, extreme sanctions against Russia, for example. Um, and it's, you know, just preparing for impending changes to the AML regime, taking concrete steps uh, to be ready for these rules coming into effect. Um, all of these things, I, I'd say, are are key takeaways. Thank you. Um, and Rachel? I would uh, reiterate what you said about systems and controls. Uh, system control failures are where you're going to get the fines. It's typically easier for uh, regulators to fine you for, the, for that. Um, although a lot of these enforcement actions, you know, for example, the HSBC and NatWest ones are been years in the making. So it's not... Uh, uh, fast moving by any stretch of the imagination, but it is something that the Financial Conduct Authority is uh, very hot on at the moment, and they issued a uh, with the PRA a dear CEO letter to retail banks last year saying you need to get your house in order in terms of uh, financial crime systems and controls pronto. Uh, my other takeaway is that the FCA is concerned about low-quality MLROs, and I would say that this is particularly an issue in some of the new entrants, uh, cryptos, payment services. They've had a lot of problem getting uh, over the line in terms of authorizations, and um, uh, crypto firms have failed to uh, gain uh, money laundering regulation registration under the FCA because of poor MLROs. And the FCA recently went as far as rearticulating what the capabilities of a, uh, an MLOR, MLRO are. <laughs> uh, so I think that pretty much says it all. Uh, just a gentle reminder, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Uh, uh, my understanding is that it's not so much of a, a, a brain drain, uh, but I'm, I'm not quite sure why some of these uh, new entrants aren't uh, paying enough attention. I mean, I mentioned N26 before to financial crime systems and controls. I mean, maybe it's just something they don't understand. Entirely possible. I mean, they're so focused on the tech and how fabulous it is. I think that the sort of what they perceive extraneous bits perhaps don't get the attention they require. Alex, last but absolutely not least, takeaways for compliance officers? Well, I don't really have anything to add uh, to what the excellent points that Rachel and Brett have made. Safe to say, be alert and expect the unexpected. I think it's worth making the point that sanctions are not just tools available to American, UK and European governments in these febrile times. Nine months ago, the Chinese government sanctioned members 
of a commercial litigation uh, set of barristers at Essex Court Chambers, very, very prestigious, for allegedly spreading lies and disinformation about the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in that country. Uh, such moves are designed to make international law firms think twice before they instruct uh, the, those barristers with attendant consequences if they don't. So perhaps that's one lesson. Just expect the unexpected and be alert. So thank you all very much. I think that was a fascinating conversation. I have to say a wee bit scary in places, but I think so much for firms to think about and concentrate on and indeed invest in. Thank you also for listening to this episode of Compliance Clarified. As ever, we do hope you found it both interesting and useful. I'll include links to some of the pieces and content we referenced in the podcast in the episode notes. The annual cost of compliance survey is still open, so I'll also include a link to that. Also the link to Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence itself. And we would very much appreciate it if you would take the time to review the podcast and let us know for any suggestions for future topics. Thanks for listening. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.